We're going to continue in our series through the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke today. So you can turn your Bibles there to Luke 2. We're going to be in verses 21 through 40 this morning. Now it'll be incredibly helpful for us as we look into the next portion of Luke 2 to know that the Gospel of Luke is a gospel to the Gentiles. It was written to the non-Jewish world. Luke, the writer who accompanied the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, and is also the human author of the book of Acts, is himself a Gentile. And this book was distributed amongst the churches to the Gentile world, but it is written specifically to a man named Theophilus. Sounds like a a Greek name, doesn't it? There's not many Theophiluses in the Old Testament. Uh, We jokingly talked about naming our dog Theophilus, but we settled on Jack and Jill. But uh, it was a close second place, maybe. But Luke wrote in um, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of, of the Gospel of Luke, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Uh, by the way, Luke was a physician and a historian And the title, Most Excellent, that is given here to Theophilus, tells us that the targeted targeted recipient of this letter was very likely also an educated man, and quite possibly, and quite probably, in a position of authority. It's important for us to remember, when we read the Bible, that in a way, we are always reading it over the shoulders of the original audience. And so, in order to interpret it correctly, we want to know what kinds of questions Theophilus and other Gentiles would have had when they were learning about who Jesus is as they were reading this letter sent to them. And many of those questions would have been, would have arisen based on what, uh, what they'd heard, what was commonly known about the Jewish faith, and those kinds of things. So we have to, in a sense, understand and know as Theophilus would have been reading this letter, this gospel account, how he might have been thinking and what questions he might have had so that we can understand why Luke would write what he wrote and how we can learn from that. And the main question, given the events of the day and the different sources of information they would have had, is this. Is Christianity, this new thing that seems to be popping up in their day, is Christianity just a a new or even a false sect or division of Judaism? Is this whole Christianity thing just a new thing? Remember, the the saying goes, if it's new, it can't be true. Is that what this is? Now, remember, there were at least four divisions within Judaism at this time. Why would we ask if Christianity is just a new division or a new sect of Judaism? And the reason why is because there's these other divisions that are within it as well. One of them we know of is the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were the liberal sect of Judaism. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or anything like that. Anything supernatural is pretty much out for the Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees, that sect, uh, they were legalists. They believed that their own righteousness and their ability to keep the law was their way to be a good with God. Then there were some other lesser knowns, the Essenes. Uh, and these were kind of like the monks of the time. Uh, They remained isolated somewhat from society. They remained celibate. They were very pious in their religiosity, and so on. 
And then a fourth is the zealots. The zealots were ready to fight. They were ready to go to war against Rome to fight for the independence of Israel. And so as the Gentile world looks on to Judaism and understands what Judaism is, this other group of people are are popping up. Is this just something new? Is this just another thing? Is this a fifth option? What is this? When you don't know about something with much depth, uh, the details tend to blur together, right? Our understanding doesn't go very deep, and so we can confuse things. Think about this. A casual fan doesn't watch a baseball game the same way that a 20-year veteran would watch the game. A person who's never studied art or gone to a museum is probably, uh, they're going to ask why anyone would ever be impressed by anything Picasso ever painted. They might go into the museum and say, well, I could do that. That's what we do sometimes when we don't know what we're talking about. And so you could understand how some of the Gentiles might mix up some of these aspects of Judaism. They might mix up maybe these Christians who supposedly had found their king with the zealots who wanted independence from Rome. We could understand if the Gentiles just assumed the Jewish leadership was right when they said that these new Christians were causing trouble. They were introducing new and false doctrines as the Jews sought to persecute them. And this is why Luke the Gentile wrote this gospel account to Theophilus the Gentile to give an orderly account, to give him certainty, to give us certainty. This is why the veteran player becomes a commentator when we watch baseball on TV. It's why the art expert takes the novice on a guided tour of the museum. Luke is doing this so that Theophilus and the Gentile world and us could have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught about the Christ. We know that Christians were not destroying Judaism because Jesus Christ had not destroyed Judaism. He fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled the law and had ushered in the new covenant And that's what we're going to learn today, even in the account of his infancy, that Jesus had not come to abolish the law or to destroy Israel or the Jewish faith, but he came to fulfill the law and to give life and hope to Israel and to the world. So let's look into Luke chapter 2. And this is going to be the first part here that we read. It's going to be the first evidence that Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill in his earthly family and upbringing. As we see that the way that they conduct themselves and the way that they are handling the birth of their son, we're going to see evidence that this is not a new thing. So let's start reading in verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Remember that angel is Gabriel from chapter 1, verse 32. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So in these verses, Joseph and Mary obeyed five commands from God. Five commands. Number one, They obey the command conveyed by the angel Gabriel to name the Son of God Jesus. That's the first one. 
Remember, Jesus is the Greek equivalent to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. It's a great Jewish name, isn't it? And also very common. In that day, if you'd gone into a crowd and said, Hey, Jesus, you might have five guys turn their head, like you might if you went into a crowd today and said, Hey, John, or something like that. You might have a couple people look at you. The same would have been true then, but they obeyed this command. The second one, they obeyed the command for the male child to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, this started in Genesis 17 with Abraham. So we'll talk a little bit more about why it is and what it is when we go back into the book of Genesis in a few months. But then secondarily, it was officially written into the law, if you will, in Leviticus 12. So this is the word of God. This is the command of God to have your uh, son circumcised on the eighth day. They obey this command. Uh, number three, they obey the command to wait to go to the temple until after Mary's time of purification. When that time was completed after childbirth. Again, this is in Leviticus 12. Uh, here's what it was. The mother would be considered unclean uh, for seven days after the birth. Then the eighth day was the circumcision for the boy, right? And then she would need to wait 33 more days for the completion of her time of purification is what it was called. Okay, now for the boy it was one week and then 33 days. And for the girls, when a baby girl was born, it was 14 days and then 66 days. It was doubled. Don't, don't necessarily know why other than that the boy also had circumcision. That whole part of that was going on. So, in a sense, maybe they think it was even Stevens that way, okay? But <laughs> but anyways, this is what God called for. And a lot of these laws were often practical for health and sanitary reasons, uh, but always also served as reminders of the curse of sin, pointing the people to their need of spiritual purification. Now, the fourth command they obeyed. They obeyed the command given for the sanctification and redemption of their firstborn Son, this is Exodus 13. God told Israel to set apart, to sanctify unto him all of the firstborn sons. One of the meanings of the word sanctify is to set apart. So if you uh, were a young Jewish couple and you had your firstborn son, he belonged to God. If we think about that, we would think, well, if he belongs to God, then he would go to the temple and serve as a priest, right? And the answer to that was actually no, because God gave the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to be the priests. And it says there in those passages in the Old Testament that the Levites were serving as priests in the stead of those firstborn sons. So, if they're already serving there, then God gives this ability for the people of all the other tribes of Israel to redeem their firstborn son. Does that make sense? Since he was not needed to serve at the temple because the Levites were handling that, then the families could redeem their firstborn son. Remember, Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah. And the price for that redemption in Numbers 18 was five shekels. Whatever that is, right? Five shekels. Uh, This cost, along with the expenses of making the trip to the temple, would have been difficult for Joseph and Mary, which is evidenced by this next command obedience. Number five, they obeyed the command requiring a sacrifice after the completion of Mary's purification. Back to Leviticus 12, and I'll read a little bit of this in a second. There's so much from it. Uh, Because the purification process pictured sin, 
A sacrifice was needed to picture the ultimate sacrifice that was soon to be made at the cross by this little baby boy, right? So Mary and Joseph's lack of wealth that we talked about last week is on display here again in these verses. As the choice of the turtle doves, the pigeons, was a provision that God gave for anyone who could not afford a lamb. So this is Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. Listen to this. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent meeting a lamb. What did Mary and Joseph bring? Turtle doves or pigeons, right? But they're to bring a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So there's the burnt offering and there's the sin offering. This says, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And, verse 8, here's the provision. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her. And she shall be made clean. So that's the account. That's the account of Jesus' earthly family and upbringing. And by the way, as we get into the next part of this chapter, what do Mary and Joseph look like compared to everybody else at the temple who may have brought their firstborn son or a baby to bring a a burnt offering or sin offering? Do they look like elite people? Do they look like people who everybody ought to be paying attention to and saying, whoa, this family is special? They look like a regular, lower middle class to poor family who can't afford a lamb. Which, if you think about it, there are probably a lot of those kind of people. Uh, So this baby named Jesus, he's not the only one named Jesus. A husband and a young woman going into the temple like they were told. Just a regular family, right? Just a regular family. But they weren't totally regular, right? If, and as far as Luke's purposes go, if this was a family that was practicing some kind of false or newfangled sect of Judaism because they believe that their son's the Messiah, so that's crazy, that part's weird. But if they were some newfangled uh, Jewish sect worshiping people, they were doing a really bad job of it because they obeyed all of these five commands from the Lord and from the law of the Jewish people. They followed the law carefully, they followed it willfully, joyfully, and a great cost to them. They knew who this baby boy was, and they weren't going to let the difficulty keep them from following the Lord. They were, as everybody who has sincere belief does, they were evidencing their belief through obedience, through the obedience that follows. Now, let's look at some more evidence that Luke gives from these two witnesses. Verse 25. Now, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. never tells us in this passage how old Simeon is, but he says some things that make us think that he was ready. He's probably pretty old. Verse 27 says, He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents the parents brought in the child Jesus 
to do for him according to the custom of the law. So there's that, uh, that line of speech there again. He took him up, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I can finally die according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled. This is the second time they marveled, right? The first time with the shepherds and their testimony. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We, we think Mary's soul was pierced as she watched the events unfold of this son, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this is the testimony of Simeon. This is his witness, his example. Simeon was a righteous, devout Jewish man. It's as if Theophilus says, thanks, Luke. Thank you for your input. Thanks for all the information, the data, the facts. But I'd really like to hear from a Jew, please, if I could have that. And Luke says, how about a really old Jew? This isn't something new. How about a really old Jew? Somebody who's been faithfully walking in step with the Spirit of God for years. That'll work. That'll work. Now imagine walking into a humongous church building. Let's pretend that we have to go down to Lansing for this. Okay, go down to the Capitol. We'll go down to Lansing. Big old church building. All of the Christians from the state of Michigan gather together at different times throughout the year. Any one of them could be there at any point in time making sacrifices and worshiping there at the temple, praying and fasting. And you bring your baby boy. He's not even two months old. And you bring your baby boy into the temple, and all of a sudden, this old gentleman (laughs) comes up, his eyes light up, for some reason at you and not anybody else, and he walks up to the mom and takes the baby out of her hands and holds him and says, oh, it's you, it's this, this child. What might you be thinking? Give me my baby, (laughs) right? Something along those lines, right? The husband's thinking, okay, I think I can take this old guy. Somewhere in there, that's happening. This man's either crazy or super pumped about something. We know that at least. And he looks down at Jesus and says, I can die happy now. I've seen your salvation, Lord. This is the Savior of the world. He is the light for the Gentiles and the glory for Israel. He didn't just say, wow, he's handsome. He said all of these things about him. So we can understand why Joseph, sorry, and Mary, I combined their names together, why Joseph and Mary marveled. And for a number of reasons, maybe, right? But then Simeon makes this statement. This child is appointed for the fall and rising. The fall and rising of many in Israel. And he says this, thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. What does this mean? Who were the ones who were falling in Israel? And we can say from the rest of the scripture that these are people who will not believe. Who will not believe in this, who this baby boy is. For the rising, who are those that are rising? Those who believe. 
who put their faith and trust in Christ. And how were their hearts, the inner man, how was that revealed? Uh, By their faith or the lack thereof. By their obedience or the lack thereof. Now, who should have been first in line to welcome the Messiah? In this culture, in this time, and all of the inner workings of the temple, we would think that religious Jewish leaders would have been on to this. But this child's going to be the rise and fall, and hearts are going to be revealed. Think, as, as Theophilus thinks through these statements and knows kind of in a novice sort of a way, but learning and gaining information as he goes along about the Jewish people and their culture, those Sadducees, they didn't believe what the Old Testament taught. The, the Pharisees, they, they didn't need a Savior because they were good enough on their own. They were awesome enough. You know, the Essenes, they were isolated and trusting in their pious lifestyle. And the Zealots, they were busy trying to get rid of Rome. They were looking for a kingdom and not for a Savior. And so Jesus comes and hearts are revealed. You know, our hearts look, work like a, a water bottle, Okay. In, in, in this way, okay? Not in every way. Your heart, this is not a science class, okay? Your heart doesn't work like a water bottle that way. But when pressure comes on this water bottle, now that I've removed the cap, what's going to happen? Sorry. I meant for that to all go on the flowers. They're, they're probably fake points at us too, aren't they? They'll be okay. Because what came out of here? Just water, right? And what was going to come out of this water bottle anytime I squeeze it? Unless we put something else in there, right? What's in it is what's going to come out. Really, that's, that's how our hearts work. And when pressures of life come on us, what's in our heart comes out. And so what came out of the hearts of those who were trusting in their own righteousness? What came out of the hearts of those who chose not to believe in anything supernatural? What came out of the hearts of those who really wanted a kingdom and not not their king? What was in their hearts is what came out. Does that make sense? This is how we function. This is how they functioned. And this is what Simeon said would be. Now, wait. Who was Simeon? Uh, What group was he with? Surely he must have been in one of these four groups. They're the most popular, right? This is what everybody seems to be joining themselves to. But verse 25 just says this. There was a man. That's it. He's just a man. Not a high-ranking official. Not, not somebody that everybody knew about. He's just a man. He's just a faithful, devoted, sincere, believing Jewish man who God chose to uniquely use to show everyone who Jesus is. So if Simeon's heart was revealed to be full of sincere belief, what was revealed out of the hearts of the Jews who were seeking these Christians' demise? They were full of unbelief. Now, on to our final witness uh, with a very similar testimony as Simeon. Verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. Interesting. Are these new Christians something weird? And what does Luke do? Let's have an old man and an old woman who've been doing this for a long time uh, weigh in on this. 
she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years and then, and then uh, from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, an 84-year-old Jewish woman who worshipped, fasted, prayed night and day at the temple for the last 60 years or so. If she had been married about the same time that Mary was betrothed, and if her husband had died seven years into their marriage, she's been at the temple for 60-some years, fasting, praying, night and day. Some good evidence of commitment and belief and sincerity? It seems to be. So God lets her in also on the identity of this baby boy, just like he did with Simeon. And when she sees him, just like Simeon, she rejoices. She doesn't seem to snag the baby out of the arms, but she rejoices nonetheless. And she starts telling people. She gives thanks to God and she starts telling people. Uh, Imagine seeing people around the temple and this old 84-year-old woman is going around saying, "Are, Are you looking for the redemption of Israel? There he is! Are you looking for the redemption of Israel? You're looking for the hope of Israel? You're not? Why? Forget it, forget it, forget it. Are you looking for the hope of Israel? You are. He's right here. And she's going about spreading this message and pointing people to Jesus. And already, as people would say yes or no to this question that she might ask, and, and maybe some of them might feel uncomfortable. Why is this lady talking to me like this? What do you mean the hope of Israel? Leave me alone. Even in this situation, hearts are being revealed as they think about the coming of their Messiah. Their hearts are being revealed. Verse 39, And when they had performed everything, they being Joseph and Mary, with the Christ child, and here's this statement again, they performed everything according to the what? The law of the Lord. They returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, we can't really imagine how uh, much a child like Jesus would stick out in his town, in his home, in his family. Remember, he was without sin, exercising God-like wisdom because he is God. We've never experienced anything like that before, have we? But he grew up this way. It's pretty amazing to think about. So Luke could ask. He could say, all right, so Theophilus, Gentiles, church, are all these Christians just some sort of extreme religious offshoot cult kind of thing from Judaism? Is that what they really are? Of course, no, the answer is no. And he says, no, uh, Jesus' family were devout, sincere followers of, of God who kept the law even in the midst of their hardship. Uh, Simeon and Anna were devout, sincere followers of God who faithfully walked in step with the Spirit and saw their journeys fulfilled when they saw the baby who had come to be their Savior. Simeon and Anna did not leave their faith when they saw this baby who would be called 
the Christ. They didn't leave their faith. They celebrated and were further solidified in the truth of their faith. It had come to pass. They were uh, solidified in the truth of their faith and, and in the integrity of their God who had always made these promises and always fulfilled his promises made. Jesus was not something new. He wasn't something new. He was the old promise fulfilled. Now, if Jesus wasn't new, if he instead was the fulfillment of the old, uh, what's been there all along, then who is new? There were obviously disagreements amongst these, amongst these people, amongst the Jewish people. If Jesus wasn't new, then who was? Well, it turns out the Sadducees, those who held the liberal views of the scriptures, founded in 167 B.C., the Pharisees, the legalists, same time, about 167 B.C. Again, the Essenes, those pious isolationists, same time, same time. The different ones, the zealots, the ones that were fighting for the kingdom but not looking for their king. Uh, amazingly, they started up about the time of the birth of Christ, not long after his birth. So who's new? It was these people. All those who were holding the sway, holding sway in the culture and religious life of the people, of the Jewish people, of Israel at this time, that was the new. That was what had diverted or gone away from the truth of Scripture. That's what it was. And do you remember what Luke kept writing about in this account? The phrase that he seemed to say over and over and over again? According to the law of the Lord, according to the word of God, according to the word of God, uh, not according to the rabbinical tradition, not according to pharisaical teaching, not according to custom, according to the word of the Lord. Now let's, let's apply that in our culture today. Are there some Christian books that make it on the New York Times bestseller list? Yes, there are. Does that mean they're amazing? They may or may not be. But all it means is that they sold a lot of copies. Right? That is what the bestseller list is, right? It's the list of the best sellers. What makes it good? The law of the Lord, right? The word of the Lord is what makes it good. Uh, the majority of people and what the majority of people say does not mean it's biblical. It does not mean automatically that it's truth. That's not the case. If Gentiles are defining Judaism, think about this now. If they look at culture and they try to define, define Judaism and they do it without the word of God, what are they going to do it with? They're going to look at the people. They're going to look at the current teachings. They're going to look at the different divisions. And they're going to just take all those things and amass what they think Judaism is. What does the world today define Christianity as? Every four years or two years, we hear about the evangelicals. Well, who are they? And how is that defined? But then Christians, how do we define it? Because uh, how we define it really matters, doesn't it? In the sense that if we are those, we probably ought to know what those are. And who gets to actually define it? 
The Lord. And where would we find that definition? The Word of God. The Word of God. Theophilus would have had all of these things in his mind, and he needs to know what the truth is. He would need for Luke to give him an orderly account so that his beliefs can be made certain. Because there's a whole lot of data to gather. There's a whole lot of mixture of information, and he needs to know what the truth is. And, And here's how it works. The Word of God functions for us like a pair of glasses. And we have two options, because we all wear glasses. It just depends on which ones we're wearing. And here's how we can do it. We can either take culture and common thought and prevailing ideas and philosophies and put those glasses on and use those to read the Word of God. Or we can take the Word of God and put that pair of glasses on and use it to read culture and prevailing philosophies and ideas and what the world says is right and wrong and who they say God is. Does that make sense? Uh, One of those options is far better than the other. I'll let you figure out which one that is, okay? I think you know. I think you know. I think you know. Okay, by the way, um, we're about at the end of the year. Might I suggest a great New Year's resolution? Let's be resolved this year to get into the Word of God and to know what it says. We can't, we can't rightly deduce the truth if we haven't taken it in. Let's be in the Word of God this year, church. Okay? Jesus wasn't something new. He was the old promise fulfilled. Jesus wasn't a lie. He was the revealer of truth. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. And as Jesus would later say, Abraham looked forward to his day and was glad. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for Israel to look and live. And so was the Son of Man lifted up for us. So of the people in this passage, who were the ones that were on the same page as Abraham and Moses? It wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Sadducees, it wasn't the Essenes, it wasn't the Zealots. It was a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, those with sincere belief and sincere faith. And Jesus Christ is that Son of Man who was lifted up for us. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He fulfilled the law in perfect obedience, even in his heart. He remained the spotless lamb without blemish, suitable for sacrifice that we talked about last week, that the the law had been pointing forward to for all these years. The Old Testament cries out, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus suffered and died in our place on the cross. All of the sacrifices, all of the lambs and pigeons and turtle doves for all of those years and for all of those people, all signs pointing people forward to who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And the Messiah had now come. He's come. And as Simeon said, the hearts of the people were revealed. Many Jews who were bringing their lambs and and putting their apparent godliness on display were having nothing to do with Jesus. Their heart, their motivations were being revealed. They were refusing to believe. And it says that he's come for all peoples. A light to the Gentiles. 
Why would Luke write this to the Gentiles? Because Jesus came for us too. And glory for Israel. So every one of us has to decide what to do with Jesus. Is he really who he said he is or not? Is he my Lord and my Savior or not? And what we do with Jesus is revealed. Our hearts are revealed by our obedience, by our actions. Remember that followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And as Simeon said, what you do with Jesus will be your rising or your falling. So if you're here today and have never been presented with these truths, believe. Believe. He is the Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Follow him. He really is who he says he is. He was appointed for the rising of many. He is the fulfillment of God's promises in the old covenant. He is our redemption. He is our savior. Jesus Christ is our God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we take the Bible for granted so much. And it's so easy too. There's so many varieties and there's so many different options for sale. So many different medias that we could get it from now. But Lord, help us to see and and rejoice in the fact that amidst all of the other information that's out there in the world for us to hear and all the different opinions there are for us to weigh and to try to think through and manage, uh, Lord, you gave us your word. You gave us a way to know who you are and to know what is true and to know who our Savior is. And so we thank you. God, we thank you that, that God the Son took on flesh and came and dwelt among us and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And pray, Lord, that if there would be anybody here today who does not yet know Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And God, as we celebrate this week, as we spend time with family and friends, as we give gifts and have all this time together of fellowship, God, help us uh, to do it with joy, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. For our born and sinless, crucified and risen Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.